Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Seeker Plus, where we take deep dives into one topic. I'm your host, Julian Huguet, and today we're going to explore a place that's been neglected for far too long. And no, I'm not talking about the office chair in my bedroom that's covered in laundry that's not quite dirty enough to wash. Maybe you could wear it once or twice more. I'm talking about someplace a little more mysterious than that. I'm talking about Venus, our solar system neighbor often dubbed Earth's evil twin. And if you think it's a bit harsh calling Venus evil, well then you just try living there and you tell me otherwise, because it is no picnic. The conditions on the planet are terrible. Consider this, its surface temperature is hot enough to melt lead. The atmospheric pressure would crush you even if you were inside a nuclear-powered submarine. There's no liquid water on the planet, it's got toxic, toxic clouds, and it forgot my birthday last month. Alright, well, other than that last point, the planet is actually a terrible, inhospitable place that scientists have had a hard time studying. I'd even go so far as to argue that we have an easier time studying Saturn and Jupiter than Venus, which is a lot closer. In this series, we're going to unpack some mysteries, explain how the planet got so unforgiving in the first place, why 127 minutes is the number to beat for keeping space probes alive on Venus, take that James Franco, and what plans NASA has for future exploration. That was 127 hours reference in case anybody remembers that movie. Anyway, if by the end of this series you still think Venus isn't so bad, then maybe you're the evil twin. But for now, let's look at how Venus compares to Earth. As the similarities go, Earth is only about 5% larger than Venus. The two planets weigh almost the same, with Earth again edging Venus out, and they both have iron cores surrounded by a mantle of silicate rock. The prevailing solar system origin theory even suggests that Venus and Earth formed roughly about the same time around 4.5 billion years ago, when a nebula condensed into the Sun and heavy, rocky materials formed the inner terrestrial planets. These reasons explain why Venus gets the twin moniker, but it's where the similarities end and where the evil part begins. Compared to Earth, Venus has a thick, toxic atmosphere filled with carbon dioxide, which really puts a YouTube comment section to shame. There are clouds of sulfuric acid, yes, clouds of acid, which are so thick and unrelenting they trap heat in the atmosphere. This runaway greenhouse effect explains why, despite not being the closest planet to the sun, it's actually the hottest in our solar system clocking in at around 475 degrees Celsius. If you somehow managed to withstand those temperatures at the surface, you'd probably have a hard time keeping your body upright. That's because the atmospheric pressure at the surface is over 90 times that of Earth. It's like having over 1,300 pounds of pressure pressing down on each square inch of your body. Now, before you yell at me for my choice of units, I picked them because I think if I use metric, you wouldn't know what I meant. Like if I said, that's like having 9 million newtons per square meter on your body. Does that, you have any sense of that? That's what I thought. But I'll put it another way for all you metric heads. According to NASA, you'd get that same pressure if you were at 1.6 kilometers depth underneath the ocean. There you go. You happy? So, poisonous atmosphere, check. Scorching temperatures, check. Crushing pressures, check. It's like playing in the Super Bowl in Los Angeles. Do I need to go on? Well, I do and I will, in case you, I don't know, stepped away for a second. Let me really hammer it home. 
Venus also has no water on its surface. So in a hypothetical scenario where you've flown to Venus, plummeted through the thick yellowish clouds of sulfuric acid, withstood grueling temperatures, and survived not getting crushed to death by the atmosphere, unfortunately, you wouldn't have any sweet, sweet liquid water to keep you alive either. Now, to some, Venus may sound like a lost cause, but the planet we know today may not have always been that way. You remember how I mentioned earlier that Earth and Venus formed around the same time, around 4.5 billion years ago, when both planets were just coming into their own as baby planets do. Back then, the Sun was much dimmer, placing Venus firmly inside the habitable zone, the region around a star that would allow for liquid water to exist on the planet's surface. At that time, it's believed that not only liquid water existed on the surface, but the planet had a stable climate and cooler temperatures, both of which would have been more amenable to some form of life. While no one is sure at what point things changed and why, we do know that something happened. One idea involves the Sun. Since this glowing ball of hydrogen and helium is a yellow dwarf star, it brightens as it ages. So it's possible that Venus started to warm up and began to move towards the edge of the habitable zone. As this happened, the oceans on Venus's surface evaporated and water vapor moved up into its atmosphere. Once too much water vapor reached the atmosphere, it kicked off a runaway greenhouse effect, creating clouds that got too thick, trapping heat, and further increasing the surface temperature, which caused more water to move into the atmosphere and so on and so forth. I think you get the idea. Basically, the planet began to suffocate itself over many years. So that's the slow death version for Venus. The other suspect worked a lot faster to turn Venus into the hellscape that we know today. This theory suggests that volcanoes, and I'm talking massive, world-killing, apocalyptic, multiple extinction-level volcanoes erupted around the same time. It's like if 2020, 2021, and 2022 were volcanoes. And they released so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that the planet's heat was trapped. This boiled off its oceans, which in turn trapped more heat, creating a feedback cycle that couldn't be stopped. Plate tectonics, if Venus had any, would have shut down because they use water as a lubricant so the plates can slide around. Without it, the system can't bury carbon deep in the planet, so CO2 eventually became the dominant gas in the atmosphere. Today, that one gas makes up about 96% of the planet's atmosphere compared to less than 0.05% of Earth's. Now, the jury is still out on which cataclysm did Venus in. Both scenarios are still up for debate at the moment. You may even be wondering, so what? What does it matter how Venus died? What does the death of Venus have to do with me? Well, actually a lot, Dave. I'm kidding, it doesn't pertain specifically to Dave's, but can you imagine everyone named Dave listening just now? They would have been freaked out. Anyway. While perfectly habitable Venus was becoming not that, its neighbor, our lovely blue planet Earth, was also going through some changes. <sighs> Those awkward teen years, you know, Earth was just kind of forming and figuring itself out, dealing with what type of planet it wanted to be in the solar system. Would it follow the same tragic fate as Venus or go down its own path? Well, after a few bumps in the road, aka nearly planet-killing asteroids and megavolcanoes, Earth began to stabilize a bit. Its atmosphere kept the planet comfortable enough for life to start to thrive, and we remained in the habitable zone. 
Now, forgive me for completely glossing over the mega volcanoes and massive space rocks that almost turned Earth into its neighbor. I know it sounds awesome, but there's so much to unpack there. We need a whole other series on Earth's multiple extinction level events to cover them. Anyway, back to what I was saying about Venus. Earth was spared a fate similar to Venus, sometimes by luck, sometimes just because of different environmental conditions. On one level, by studying what happened to Venus, we can learn how other Earth-like planets evolve, take shape, and what conditions cause these exoplanets to either flourish or die. Studying Venus can even show scientists that the habitable zone can move, which could mean that an exoplanet may have had life at one point in its history and could harbor life again if conditions change. While that opens up a ton of questions about terraforming, which, no matter what anyone says, is still very far away, if it will happen at all, there are more direct links closer to home. For instance, studying these sulfuric acid clouds on Venus offers scientists a natural way to study haze in our own atmosphere. These studies can improve our climate models so that we may know what we could be dealing with in the future. That's not all when it comes to thinking about greenhouse gases. Venus is a cautionary tale, reminding us how much can change on a planet because of its climate. Of course, Venus is the worst case scenario, the poster child for the greenhouse effect. But if it can happen on a planet that was potentially full of liquid water and habitable, well, then it could happen almost anywhere. Now, I don't want to end on doom and gloom. It's so incredibly unlikely that what happened on Venus will happen to Earth today. I don't even want to leave the impression that that's in the cards. It's not. Instead, what I do want to leave us thinking about is how little we still know about our neighboring planet. There's so many mysteries and questions about this fascinating, terrifying, and very, very deadly world that keep me up at night. Like, what exactly is lurking beneath the thick clouds? Why does the planet keep killing every spacecraft we send there? What are you hiding from us, Venus? If you were living at the end of the 19th century and you looked up at Venus, all you could see was a featureless world hidden beneath thick clouds. So, of course, the planet became this great mystery. What exists beneath those clouds, observers must have thought. Could there possibly even be life? Science fiction was starting to capture the zeitgeist around this time, with writers taking these ideas and running with them. Some writers imagined an ocean world without any land, while others wrote about a primordial twin to Earth that was covered in vast forests, had massive sharks dominating the seas, and even mammal-like creatures that were just getting started. Sort of like Earth, but during the Carboniferous period 350 million years ago, you know, when dragonflies were like the size of seagulls or... Oh man, if you've got entomophobia, you know, the, the fear of bugs, sorry about that. Uh, retroactive trigger warning. But this next vision may suit you a bit more. It depicts Venus as more of a paradise, Eden-like in almost every regard. These many far-flung ideas about Venus persisted for decades, and without much evidence to suggest otherwise, they remained the popular notions of what life on Venus was actually like. Yes, there were a few outliers during this time who thought that Venus was a desolate place under those thick clouds, but it took until the height of the Cold War for hard evidence to come through. Thanks to the space race, we slowly realized which vision was actually true. 
The moon gets all the attention, but the Soviets and Americans weren't just focused on the most expensive cheese run in history. Other celestial bodies were targets for each country's bragging rights, and their respective space programs sent probes and landers to both Mars and Venus. In 1962, NASA's Mariner 2 probe reached Venus, which made it the first spacecraft to ever explore another planet. Mariner 1 was supposed to take that title, but because the rocket guidance software had a missing hyphen, the probe went off course and had to be destroyed on launch. So, you know, rockets are hard. Still, Mariner 2's rocket presumably added the hyphen, and the mission was a success. As you can imagine, firsts were all the rage during the space race. So, for Venus at least, that's USA 1, USSR 0. But besides getting there first, the probe did something incredible. When it scanned the cloud-covered world, it changed our understanding of Venus overnight. The probe recorded ground temperatures over 400 degrees Celsius, couldn't find water vapor in the atmosphere, and found zero evidence of a magnetic field around the planet, which was a nail in the coffin for the idea that Venus could either be a beautiful, almost untouched oasis, or that it was home to massive creatures roaming in endless green forests like so many writers had envisioned for years. Anyone who suggested Venus was not what everyone else thought, well, they were finally vindicated. But even they must have been surprised by what Mariner 2 saw. Venus was hell, or as close as any planet can come to it. So here's an interesting aside. Eleven years earlier, the Polish science fiction writer Stanisław Lem published a novel called The Astronauts, which actually described Venus as a hellish place. The story goes on to talk about an international crew that travels to Venus only to find it in ruins devoid of life, and it was one of the first descriptions of the planet that accurately resembled its deadly conditions. So kudos, Mr. Lem. Besides his eerily accurate predictions, he was one of the best science fiction writers around, and I will go to bat with anyone who says differently. Go, go to bat implies actually that um, I'm supporting, I mean, I, I'll, I'll fight. You know what? I just like him a lot, okay? And if you, since I'm already on the topic of science fiction, what the literary community learned from Mariner 2 marked the beginning of the end for classic novels about Venus. No more space adventures involving astronauts gallivanting around the planet because writers and the public knew it was impossible and there was just no going back. A few years later, the Soviet space probe Venera 4 reached Venus and confirmed that the atmosphere was almost entirely composed of carbon dioxide. So two science fiction writers, Brian Aldiss and Harry Harrison, great name, put together an anthology of stories as a response. They included all kinds of debunked ideas about the planet. These were stories that were published before Venera 4's findings came out, and in hindsight, they all looked pretty ridiculous. One of them was Pirates of Venus, that was an actual name of a story in the collection, which was fittingly called Farewell, Fantastic Venus. Before reading about Venus for the series, I wasn't planning on bringing in so much sci-fi history, but it's kind of a fascinating backstory here about our earlier notions of the planet that often gets forgotten, and it's really connected to our ideas of space today. I'll probably have plenty more tangents in future episodes, but I promise that was my last one here. So, let's get back to the matter at hand. The Soviets and Americans sent probe after probe to Venus with mixed results at first, and then greater success as years went by. 
flybys, which is all either space program could do for a while, were revealing plenty of new information about the planet that scientists couldn't imagine before. But there was still so much left to explore. What they needed was to land on the surface. So, in came the Soviet Venera 7, which at nearly 500 kilograms was a large probe for back then. It was so heavy because it was over-engineered with the goal of actually surviving on Venus's surface. It could withstand pressures of up to 180 atmospheres and temperatures as high as 540 degrees Celsius. Now, despite being so massive, the thinking was Venus's thick atmosphere should make it much easier for the probe to slow down on entry. It should be fine, right? Well, with Venus, nothing is certain. On December 15, 1970, the spacecraft had such a rough landing, it seemed like it was only transmitting garbage after impact. It looked like Venera 7 would follow in the footsteps of other failed Venus space probes, but after some computer processing, it was revealed that a weak signal transmitted about 23 minutes of data. Now, 23 minutes doesn't seem like a very long time, but Venera 7 collected more data about the planet's surface temperature, pressure, and wind speed than ever before. What's even more impressive is that this mission confirmed we could land something on Venus and get data back, which was a turning point for all types of landers. Venera 7 was the first spacecraft to send data back from the surface of another planet. A huge win for the Soviet in terms of Venusian firsts, the USA and USSR were now tied at one apiece. But the Soviets would start running away with the ball game very soon. The next spacecraft came again from the Soviets and landed on Venus two years later in 1972. This one was called, probably guessed already, Venera 8, and once on the surface it transmitted data for more than 50 minutes, roughly double the time of Venera 7. This data helped scientists learn more about the surface conditions as well as the surface regolith, but maybe more importantly, it revealed information about Venus's light levels. It found that conditions were similar to those during an overcast day here on Earth, and perfectly suited for photography. So naturally, the next landers would have to be outfitted with cameras. Over the next few years, four more Venera missions captured our only images of Venus's surface. These images show parts of the Venera landers in the foreground and vast, cracked and desolate looking landscapes surrounding them. It's kind of uncanny because on the one hand, these sites look familiar, they could be something seen here on Earth, but on the other hand, you just know you're looking at deadly, toxic Venus, a place that we know is locked in a runaway greenhouse effect dance of death, and there's no change coming anytime soon. Remember, Venus's environment is so harsh, these landers, which were specifically designed to withstand even worse conditions by the Russians, and the Russian machine never break, well, they survived for minutes, not days or months. We're talking minutes, and that was deemed a great success. In fact, Venera 13 holds the Guinness World Record for longest time survived on Venus by a spacecraft, which is 127 minutes. Although, can it be a world record if it didn't happen on Earth? And I'll also point out, the probe is still there in some form. It's just not operating, but it's kind of surviving, but I don't know, whatever. I guess Guinness knows something I don't know. Space programs continued to send dedicated spacecraft to our haunted house of a neighboring planet every so often in the 1980s, but soon interest waned. 
If any spacecraft was swinging by Venus, it was typically on another mission. You know, just stopping by on its way to something better. For example, NASA hasn't sent a dedicated spacecraft to the planet in over 30 years. But for Venus evangelists, this needed to change. Over the last few decades, some 30 proposals to develop a Venus mission have been submitted to NASA, but none of them move forward. The tides, though, are starting to change. There's growing public interest in Venus as the clear, shining example of when greenhouse gases can totally muck everything up. It helps that now we've got better, stronger materials to protect future missions than what existed decades ago, and NASA is developing high-temperature electronics made out of silicon carbide. So it seems that we're at a turning point for exploring Venus once again. All the planets are aligning, you know, metaphorically. Scientists may finally get a chance to study Venus top to bottom, inside and out, to learn more about the composition of its atmosphere, which could tell us about how it formed and evolved. It could also tell us more about the planet's surface, which could help determine whether plate tectonics and volcanism are still active today. Venus is so hot right now that NASA recently approved two upcoming Venus missions, Veritas and Da Vinci Plus. I don't think they got the plus from Seeker Plus, but I can't confirm that. So it's looking like Venus is coming back into the limelight again. Is it me or does it feel like Venus is suddenly everywhere in the news? Scientists discovering possible signs of life on Venus. NASA has announced two new missions to explore our planetary neighbor, Venus. At one point, we thought Venus could be a tropical paradise, but now we know it's our evil twin. Explain. So what's going on here? Why is Venus in the spotlight at the moment? Is it just temporary or should we get used to seeing and hearing more about the second planet from the sun moving forward? To understand why Venus is seemingly everywhere today, I've got to back up a couple of decades. So, from about the 60s to the 80s, Venus was actually a central focus of space exploration. It was the planet next door that we could reach in shorter and cheaper intervals than sending spacecraft to our other planetary neighbor, Mars. But by the 90s, like a broken VCR, things took a hard pause. The Soviet Union, which had already sent their fair share of missions to Venus, including the only successful landers, was going through some pretty dramatic changes. If you weren't around back then, it wasn't a simple rebrand. The USSR dissolved into 15 independent republics, and with its collapse, interest and money were focused elsewhere, to say the least. That was the main reason why the Russians' attention on Venus waned at that time, but for the Americans, it was a different story. There were claims about potential life on Mars, including one from NASA suggesting that they had found microscopic fossils in a Martian meteorite. Obviously, that sent shockwaves through the scientific community and even reached receptive ears in the White House. In 1996, President Clinton gave a speech about this discovery and said, I am determined that the American space program will put its full intellectual power and technological prowess behind the search for further evidence of life on Mars. Look, I'm not great at impressions, but I feel like if you quote Clinton, you have to try, right? So that was a pretty big endorsement from the president. And since then, NASA has landed eight spacecraft on the red planet without direct evidence of Martian life yet, I might add. But that's besides the point. What I want you to take away from this is that for the last 30 years, Mars has clearly been getting all the attention. I mean, NASA's flying a freaking helicopter around on it right now. 
NASA's former chief scientist Jim Green wants to terraform it, and Elon Musk says that he thinks spacecraft would be landing on Mars in the next five years. Are, are we all obsessed or what? This dedication, shall we call it, is warranted in many respects, and scientists have learned a ton about Mars. I ain't a Mars hater. However, for some Venus evangelists, it has pulled focus away from our other neighboring planet, to the point that it took a study suggesting that life could exist in the clouds of Venus to get anyone's attention. You remember that study from the fall of 2020? There was a lot going on back then, I understand if you missed it, so I'll recap. A group of astronomers claimed they found signals of phosphine gas in Venus's atmosphere, between 48 and 60 kilometers above the surface, where conditions aren't completely deadly. See, on Earth, anaerobic bacteria produce this gas, and so the idea goes that there could be microbes making this gas in the atmosphere of Venus. Pretty soon after the study was published, planetary scientists started to call the findings into question, and it came out that the original data from the observatory had some complications. While the findings are certainly questionable, the study, seemingly accidentally, put Venus back in the spotlight overnight. It got people excited about Venus in a way they hadn't been in decades. It was also a stark reminder that we know so little about this forgotten neighbor. A lot of what we do know about Venus comes from observations from the 70s. So, both of these things, excitement and intrigue, or as I call it, excitatrigue, are two necessary ingredients for any space mission. Now, I'm not suggesting that either had any impact on what NASA would do next, but I also can't guarantee that it didn't convince a few stalwarts in charge. In the summer of 2021, as part of NASA's discovery program, two missions to Venus were selected, which is a big deal. Since the 90s, there have been more than 30 Venus proposals to NASA, but none were chosen. One of the two recent missions that was selected is called Da Vinci Plus. The mission will include an orbiter and a descent probe. The orbiter has four cameras on board that will image Venus in multiple wavelengths from above, but the probe will have a slightly more treacherous journey. It will plummet through the thick sulfuric acid clouds, taking measurements the whole time, until it reaches the surface where, because of the intense heat and pressure, the probe is expected to survive for only around 20 minutes. 50 years after Venera 7, and we're still trying to survive as long as that first lander on Venus did. Now, 20 minutes doesn't sound like a lot of time, but as we know, any minute a spacecraft can survive on Venus's killer conditions is worth celebrating. The probe will measure Venus's atmosphere in greater detail by using a couple of spectrometers to determine the compounds that make it up. Scientists are hoping these findings will shed new light on how and when the atmosphere got so bad. Venus wasn't always the hellish place that it is today. It's theorized Venus may have even had an ocean almost 700 million years ago until a runaway greenhouse effect suffocated the planet. So knowing more about what went wrong with Venus can help planetary scientists compare Venus to Earth and to potential Earth-like exoplanets, which for the latter seems like an alluring opportunity as the search for alien life solidifies its place in the mainstream. But one space mission can't answer every scientific question, and they're really not meant to. That's why NASA chose a second mission to visit Venus called Veritas, which in a nutshell could be called Venus's personal cartographer. This spacecraft will orbit the planet, mapping it in greater detail than ever before, 
it'll plot the planet's surface elevation down to 30 meters a pixel and reveal exactly what the surface is made up of. Together, this data will give scientists the highest resolution global maps of Venus's surface to date. It's not an understatement to say that this map will shape our understanding of Venus for years, if not decades. Remember when I mentioned the phosphine study from 2020 that made a real splash in the scientific community? Well, Vertas could help clear the air on this one, so to speak. The spacecraft has an infrared spectrometer that can detect water vapor within erupted material. And if the instrument is finding plenty of water below the surface, as well as volcanism, it could point to phosphine coming from somewhere other than the planet's interior. Maybe even microbes in the clouds. Or maybe not, and it's coming from somewhere else. Until we get better data to either back up this theory about phosphine-producing microbes or to debunk it, the mystery will still stand. Regardless of what happens, this new treasure trove of data will be pretty, pretty, pretty impressive, and I, for one, can't wait to see some of these maps. Both NASA missions are expected to launch towards the end of the decade, but NASA isn't the only space agency gearing up for Venus. The Indian Space Research Organization is sending an orbiter called Shukrayan in 2024. The Russians are finally returning to Venus with a little bit of everything, an orbiter, a lander, and balloons that will launch in 2029, while the European Space Agency is sending an orbiter in the early 2030s. Altogether, that sounds like a party. There's going to be balloons. So back to my original question. Why does it feel like Venus is suddenly everywhere in the news? Well, if you're thinking like I am, it seems like Venus mania isn't connected to one single cause. A controversial study that claimed they found signals of life in the thick clouds shows how preoccupied we all are with searching for life beyond Earth. Multiple space agencies are finally planning and developing missions to our forgotten neighbor after decades of neglect, and Venus represents an interesting version of Earth that's so similar to us but so radically different and inhospitable that it's worth studying. We get to witness what it's like if our own blue planet took a wrong turn billions of years ago. Venus is like an eerie, funhouse mirror that was covered up with a tarp for decades, but now the tarp has finally slipped off and I just can't tear my eyes away from it. Maybe now you feel the same way. Hey, thanks for joining me on this Seeker Plus journey to Venus. I really enjoyed this one and learned a ton, and I hope you did too. If you like it or if you have ideas for future series, be sure to let us know. You can find us on Twitter at Seeker, and I am on there too at Hug It Out. Thanks, and I'll see you for the next Seeker Plus.